You're listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Fathoms 5 by Penumbra. Read by Dana Scully Makes Me Feel Autopsy Turvy on AO3 and Call Me Scully on Twitter. Part 2. It was one more beautiful day. Scully untwisted the sheet from her ankle and padded into the bathroom. Mulder stood at the sink in his boxer shorts, anointing his armpit, a toothbrush protruding from the corner of his mouth. He turned on the faucet for cover noise so she could pee. Scully picked up her panties with her toes and overhanded them into the hamper, ran her hand down Mulder's silky back as she turned on the shower. He muttered something around his toothbrush. She stood under the lukewarm water and looked at the little sky-blue window lined with shampoo bottles and felt the small shift in water pressure as he rinsed his toothbrush. Mulder pulled open the shower curtain and leaned in for a kiss, eyes wandering downward. Breakfast in twenty. Scully smiled, idly washing. Mulder took her chin and looked at her hard and kissed her again making it stick. The curtain snapped closed, and a draught swelled over her, and the bathroom door was shut. They brushed a few fallen grape leaves aside and sat around the low table in the arbour. Scully lifted a cobalt glass of orange juice, letting the sunlight drip into it. Mulder doled out scrambled eggs, Toasted buttered bagels, sliced strawberries and kiwi. William put down Robinson Crusoe and picked up the paper and rumpled it around. Mom, say you're on a desert island. Hmm? Scully asked. You can only take three books. Does the encyclopedia count as one book? Mulder asked. I don't want to be on a desert island, Scully said. If you're stuck on one with me, you won't be needing any books, Mulder said, working his eyebrow. Three books, Mom, William pressed. Scully's eyes moved back and forth between them. The OED, she said. That's one. Could she have 30 years of the New England Journal of Medicine bound together in one volume? Mulder asked. Would that count? You couldn't lift it, said William. Maybe you could start a signal fire. You could use it for a raft, said William. You could brush up on Bursitis while drifting toward the shipping lanes. I don't want to be on a desert island, said Scully. Mom, what was Dad like when you met him? William asked, hunched over his plate. He was... Scully stopped, because it was impossible to think of that time without remembering the excitement of discovery. She met Mulder's eyes. In Vicap, they said that his intuition was scary. He would be talking about absolutely ridiculous things, and at the same time, giving the impression of being one of the most forthright people you had ever met in your life. Then he lived in this rattly little apartment, where he slept on a couch like a vampire. Vampires don't sleep on the couch, 
Mulder said curtly, biting into a bagel. You know what I mean. Scully crossed her arms in an X over her chest. He was always typing and thinking, and most people annoyed him. But he would talk to me, and I loved that about him. He would talk to me like it was important to him that I understood. And my apartment wasn't all that rattly, Mulder said. It was a styling pad. It was this dark, musty little styling pad, Scully told William, down in Old Town, Alexandria, with a view of the alley and a bullet hole in the wall. Mulder stood up and picked up his plate. I thought you liked that apartment. You told me it meant me to you. Oh, I did love that apartment, Scully said, genuinely. Anyway, it doesn't exist anymore. What? Scully asked, half-rising. They knocked it down, Mulder said lightly, turning through the French doors. Scully followed him into the kitchen. What? How do you know? When? Her eyes went adjusting to the dark interior. Last time I was in D.C., when I stopped to catch up with Skinner. It was a couple of years ago. I drove by the old stomping grounds, and the building had been demolished. Scully turned and left the kitchen and went down the steps into the yard. Halfway down the hillside, a bench sat sideways, facing the neighbor's bitten llama field. Alpacas, whatever. Scully idled the gravel path, plucking at the heads of the tarweed, and settled on the bench with her arms around one knee. The coastal mist hanging in the sunlight made her feel dislocated and oddly safe, as if the outside world had gone away and she had nothing further to worry about. It was the thought of all that space still existing, hanging on its own in the air, the swirl of microbes where they had spent so much time together, a space that meant molder to her. How could it be gone? William might have been conceived there. William came down the path, barefoot in shorts, tanned, hungover. Scully's beautiful son, so fresh in his youth, so mortal and precious. He sank down beside her, sighing, and rubbed his face. Did you feed the ducks? Scully asked. Yes, I fed the ducks. He hunched over, elbows on his thighs, staring at nothing and she put her hand on his back. Scully's old dog came down the path, padding and guilty, one ear turned inside out. What's he have? The dog had a bit of plastic bag stuck on his tooth. William freed it. Has he been into the garbage? Scully asked of no one, and of the universe. William pulled the dog's lips up into a ferocious curl, growling as he did it. Old Tash's tail wagged doggedly on. He blinked milkily in the sunlight. Scully, Scully, why don't you love me? William made the dog say in a high voice. I don't want to let myself love you, Tash, Scully said to the dog, quite seriously, ignoring William. And I don't ever want to have a dog again. Mulder came down the path with two cups of coffee. 
William threw himself back and rubbed his face and lay draped backwards over the bench, staring so riveted at the sky that Scully looked up. But there was nothing there. Mulder sat down on the other side of Scully and put his arm around her. Did you feed those ducks of yours? Mulder asked over Scully's head. Yes, I fed the damn ducks, William said. In your bare feet? Scully asked. Do you need me to show you a workup on hookworm? On avian flu? William snorted lazily. Scully was starting to feel the sun, but she had ceased to seriously sunburn. She leaned back in Mulder's arm. The ducks came up the path. Indian runner ducks, narrow and upright, with their dour beaks. Two fawn, two blue, peeping as they walked. The fawn drake had a roguish bandit mask across his eyes, and he faced William, quacking loudly. These ducks don't look fed, said Scully. I swear, they're fed. The ducks stood out of reach, commenting among themselves. Tash's tail thumped, and his eyes rolled guiltily at Scully. I guess I forgot to tell you about my apartment, Mulder said. Scully swallowed hard. I'm sorry, it just hurts. I mean, Hegel Place. She sniffed against his neck, chuckled, and rubbed her teary eyes against him. So, there's this guy, Mulder said. I think he was Russian. He survived without ill effect, a horrific 10,000 volt electric shock, which naturally caused him to arrive at the obvious conclusion that he was immortal. Mulder paused and sipped his coffee. So, he's in his early 40s. He's got years ahead of him, right? Either way. So this guy invites the media to watch him drink a liter of antifreeze. So what happened? asked William. Mulder twitched irritably. What do you think happened? He fell into a coma and died. Do I need to show you a blood workup on antifreeze? He glanced at Scully, but all the fight seemed to have gone out of him. The ducks turned in a squadron and hurried down the hill. William leapt up and pitched a rock hard across the field. Mulder got up too and stood with his hands on his hips. I'm going to remow it. William shook his head evasively, standing on one leg and plucking at the weeds with his curled toes, hands in the pockets of his shorts. Why not? Mulder asked him. Don't badger me, Dad. Let it go. It's my portal recipe, not yours. Mulder grabbed William's arm and put him in a hammerlock. Yeah, but it's on my property, he pointed out. William blinked peacefully, Mulder's arms around him. Mulder put his chin on William's shoulder and smiled at Scully. Look, Scully, this kid is going to be bigger than either of us. Dad, Dad, William was yelling, his voice squeaking like Mulder's. Mulder came to the French doors, his train of thought disrupted, finger marking the place in a book. There's some dogs down by the pond. Well, run them off, Mulder said testily, 
Scully leaned on the rail. She could hear the ducks getting upset. Growling angrily, Tash catapulted past her and shot down the hill, bristled out like a fur badger, William after him. Mulder perked up, watching, and faded into the house for a twenty-two pistol they kept in the porch. Scully stayed unmoving at the rail. The afternoon had reached that moment when the day seems endless, the sky white, when boredom sucked at one's skull like a starfish and people took siestas just to keep from going mad. She forgot herself, staring out at the expanse, hoping for a waft of chilly sea air. She still remembered her father's voice, but the things he had said to her were slipping away. He'd prepared her for a lot, but nothing like this. He was dead and burned to ashes, and the ship he sailed would be stripped and hacked up and melted down, and then only Scully and the ocean would remain. Mulder sat on the edge of the deck, stripping the pistol's barrel. The gun was rusting in the sea air. The ducks had settled down. William came slowly up the hill, swinging a stick at the weeds. Tash came up the hill very slowly, eyes glazed, panting so hard that his tongue scrolled. He went into the kitchen with his hind end trembling. Scully followed him in and dropped a few ice cubes into his water bowl. You overdid it, show off. Nobody gets to chase those ducks but you, she said. The vulnerable back of the dog's head made a tight fist of love inside her. Still, she refused to cut him any slack. Back out on the deck, she leaned on the rail. Mulder had disappeared. William came up the deck stairs, looking into Scully's eyes. He leaned beside her on the broad wooden rail. He made a face like Mulder and spat into the yard. It's hard for me to leave him, he said. Don't spit, Scully said. He'll be fine. You have to go out into the world. That's what he wants for you. You won't let him climb on the roof or get in a gunfight or... William dropped his forehead onto his arms and hunched his shoulders. Once, when William was a child and they were still in Massachusetts, Mulder was trying to drag a cat off the ridgepole of their precarious seaside house. William had famously called up, Why don't you let Mon do that? I've got him this far, Scully said, rubbing between William's shoulder blades. His back was vibrant, like horseflesh. He shivered, and she cupped his neck. Remember when he self-prescribed the duck's teramycin for his cold? And I've seen him jump over this railing onto the lawn when he was like 50, William said, smacking the rail. After a stupid frisbee. He's impetuous. Scully admitted. He's slowing down a little. He hasn't slowed down at all. We'll be in France for his birthday, Scully said dreamily, sliding her fingers through the ducktails in William's hair. Near the end of their trip, she and Mulder would be house-sitting for several weeks near Arles, in a villa belonging to Mulder's agent's mother, and they were both looking forward to it tremendously. They weren't going to do anything, Mulder had said but read and write and make love. Maybe a little cooking. Lots of wonderful walks. 
She thought that Mulder wrote like Van Gogh painted, lots of chunky words that looked like a mess, but actually made beautiful sense. Because my savoir faire is ooh la la, Mulder said behind them. Because we were relying on Mulder's high school French, said Scully. There was a rosy strip of sunburn across William's long nose. Scully licked the flat of her thumb and rubbed at a smudge on his cheek. You know, I have to go up in the attic and find my skis, he said, just barely tolerating her hand on his face. You're going to take skis on an airplane? Mulder asked wearily. I think the ski club's going to Chamonix after Michaelmas. While you're up there, can you look for a box that says raincoats? Scully asked. Mulder trailed after him into the dark hallway, steering by the flash of William's Hawaiian shorts. The terracotta felt damp as peeled cucumbers under his toes. Sunblind, he opened Scully's old pine armoire and groped through the tennis rackets and diving gear for a flashlight. Hey, while you're up there, see if you can find a little leather journal. It's about this big, Mulder said, smacking the flashlight against the heel of his hand. A stream of light wheeled up the wall and landed on William's face. Into the perilous unknown, Mulder said and tossed the flashlight up the stairs at him. William's hand clapped around it. He smiled and turned and leapt upward, his hand squeaking on the doorframe as he swung around the corner. Mulder ignored the feet thundering over his head and went quickly into his study while he had a moment of peace. If he ever had more than two minutes to write, it would be amazing what he'd accomplish. His third book was a memoir, a grimoire, a survival handbook. It was roughly disguised reportage of their dark years, in which he referred to Scully as my colleague when he mentioned her at all, so that she seemed, in these pages, an articulate shadow calling from the morgue. Their near escapes were glossed over in favour of data, Measurement of skulls and primitive wings, elephant uteruses, x-rays of teeth, transcribed testimonies, bloated steers, lab readings showing preposterous spikes. This book would be huge in the underground. Sometimes it seemed to Mulder that all true intellect belonged to the underground, to those who ignored mass sentiment. The X-Files were still classified. He could not publish the book, at least not now. It would be a live thing in a box, living in limbo, unread. But at least it would not die with him. What is this? William asked, appearing in the doorway sometime later, dusty and sweaty. Oh, whoa, Mulder said, laying his glasses on the desk. He took the videotape, which said, Dana, cops, on it, in Tara Scully's handwriting. He weighed it in his hand. This is a real find, William. This is perfect. It's exactly what we needed. Mulder and William were up to something. Scully heard the jingle of Mulder's car keys, and he came up behind her and slung his arm around her, 
and pressed up against her so that she felt the soft, delicious weight of him against her lower back. His kiss rang on her ear, and he was gone. They were back in an hour, carrying an obsolete television as heavy as a bale of hay. They shut Scully out of the study. William emerged on quests for pliers and extension cords. He phoned Arable. He asked Scully if there was popcorn. She hard-boiled some eggs and made egg salad and washed some coffee cups. If Mulder saw her doing the dishes, he would say, Oh, the wretched scullion in the scullery, and rub her bottom and kiss her neck while she was trying to work. Mulder, however, was otherwise engaged. She put the egg salad in the fridge and opened one of Matthew's beers with a bottle opener and went outside. It was twilight. The grapevines were thick around Mulder's study window, and the light flooded out. She looked down at the glowing lawn and the shaggy geometric mark on the hill. The ship would be passed by now, beyond her latitude. She tilted back the cold bottle, her eyes too full of tears to see the stars. Mulder was making a huge production out of adapting a glassy-faced TV to a late 90s VCR he'd found in an L.A. salvage store. He was versed in the archaic ancestral art of VCR operation, the last surviving member of his tribe. What's going on with her? William asked from the depths of the old leather couch. William was watching him with Mulder's own perceptive eyes, so that Mulder sometimes felt that he was watching himself. The ship must be going by. It's got her hypnotized. Hey, did you find your poor old dad an extension cord? What's the worst thing you've ever done? William asked as he got up. What, are you taking notes or something? Mulder asked. No, I'm just wondering about you, William said softly. Well... I guess taking you back from the Vandekamps was about the meanest thing I've ever done to anyone, and I'm saying this despite the fact that I've taken lives. I've killed people, creatures. Mulder took off his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose. Remember him, Mouse? He asked when William reappeared, trailing a knotted orange extension cord. Remember the aunt who poisons the children so they won't be taken to Auschwitz? How did that make you feel? Well, children were automatically selected at Auschwitz, William said. Yes, but she presumed, Mulder said. Didn't you feel angry at her? What is your point, Dad? William asked. Oh, I don't know, I don't know. Never mind. Mulder had his forehead in his hands. You know I'll be back at Christmas. William said. Mulder nodded, his face in his hands. And brave, brave Sir Mulder, he bravely ran away. William sang softly, trying to make Mulder laugh. It was just that that little boy never had a chance, Mulder said. Can you imagine what it's like to live with that? What if I never see Tash again? William asked a little aggressively. 
He's not going to die before Christmas, Mulder said firmly. He's only thirteen. We've had him since I was five. We've had him since I was forty-five, Mulder said. Believe me, it never gets easier. If I'm not here, I want you to bury him by the bench. That's what I was thinking, said Mulder. Bury him by the snake. Mulder nodded. It's a nice spot. I'd like to be buried there, by the dog and the snake, with a nice view of the sky. It'd certainly confound the archaeologists, like the Neanderthals buried with wildflowers. Grandpa Scully was buried at sea, said William. Just as ashes, said Mulder. And ten minutes after his funeral, your mom got on a plane to North Carolina to interview a psychopath on death row. She didn't even change her clothes. William nodded and lay with his arms folded, looking up at the window. Mulder turned on the television and set it to channel three. The VCR head drums began to accelerate. I don't even know why we're bothering to do this, he said. This is almost without doubt heat damaged or demagnetized. That's the spirit, William said distantly. Hey, let's remo the spiral, Mulder said, snapping the stop button. William shook his head. I don't want to lose it, Mulder insisted. The grass was growing up thickly in the brush cutter's paths. It makes Mum feel strange. William's hair drifted across one of his eyes. She feels like it's a signal to outer space or something. Did she tell you that? William shook his head, avoiding his father's eyes. If there was one thing Scully cherished above all else, it was her privacy and her anonymity. Mulder remembered her face when they saw the aerial footage on TV and knew William was right. She's being weird about me continuing to take guitar lessons. Take what you want. It's your life, Mulder said. It's your money, said William. It's my dad's blood money, said Mulder. The first William Mulder. Maybe it'll finally be used for something worthwhile. They made popcorn and conglomerated in Mulder's study that evening after Scully had walked the dog and William had loaded the dishwasher. Are you sure you want to watch this? He asked Scully as she settled demurely into the black leather couch. No, I'm not sure at all, Scully said, calmly eating popcorn. She chuckled a little, almost giddy. William and Arable sat on the Indian rug at her feet. Mulder put on his glasses to look at the remote, pushed them on top of his head and hit play. The tape crackled and then ran smoothly. Mulder was standing around in the way, fiddling with the tracking. Mulder, sit down, she said. Mulder paused the tape. Just to put this in context, this was in our seventh year together on the X-Files. The year is 2000. Ought, ought. February, I think. We flew out to L.A. on the night of the full moon. Against, it shall be noted, 
Scully's better judgment. But as you'll see, my concerns weren't completely unfounded, although nothing conclusive came of the case. And for the record, it was never officially honored under the aegis of the FBI, added Scully. So it was never a case. Well, it was an X-file, Mulder argued. Just play the tape, Mulder, Scully said. This is a bastardized Bob Marley song, Mulder said, sitting down beside Scully. Would you like me to crack open the Chateau Blanc? He asked her. Or how about some coffee? Oh my God, oh my God, Scully said, staring at the TV. Watch this, William. Here it comes, here it comes. There we are. William and Arable screamed with laughter. What? What's so funny? Scully asked. They're just excited, said Mulder. Wow, Mulder, Arable said, glancing back at him. What? Mulder said grouchily. You're a really handsome dad, said William. He's handsome now, Scully stated. If you were implying that he's not. She rubbed Mulder's leg. Thank you, Scully, said Mulder. I mean, but, whoa, Dad, William said. You guys were like cops. But cooler, said Mulder. FBI. He pretended to hold up a badge. Oh, the camera adds ten pounds, Scully said sadly. To you or to me? Mulder asked. Scully, I hate to burst your little bubble of insecurity, but you look incredible on TV. Arable turned around. So, were you guys, like, going out at this point? Going out? Scully pronounced coldly. Well, um, I mean, William was born not long after this, wasn't he? Arable asked nervously poking William deeply in the shoulder as she forced her eyes to meet Scully's. We were partners in the FBI, Scully said stiffly. We had a professional working relationship. Mulder snorted. Scully looked at him. Well, Arable's obviously done the math, he said. Scully, could be you've got some splaining to do. I'm not explaining anything to anybody, Scully said. The little Mulder and Scully on the screen were arguing in the street. By the time Mulder kicked open the door, they were all sagging sleepily. Look at that. It took me ten minutes to kick down that door. What was wrong with me? Mulder complained. You were just tired, Scully said, rubbing his leg. It was also the night you saw a topless woman and flushed a toilet on national television. She leaned her head against the back of the couch and they contemplated each other. What's tomorrow? Mulder asked dreamily. The Wakamore? Your job was just amazing, Arable said, struck. This is what you should put in your book. It's still classified. Mulder said, playing with Scully's necklace. What was it like being in the FBI? William asked. 
It was a very difficult time, Scully said, trying to explain. She patted Mulder's thigh in emphasis. It was probably the hardest time of our lives. We lost family members, friends. It was very dangerous. But, she said, warming. The work was so incredible, so amazing. As terrifying as it could be sometimes. That It was a very happy time, too, said Mulder. Because we were together. Yes said Scully, looking into his eyes. It was dangerous, and it was happy. But we had found each other, and we were together. No matter what, said Mulder. Yes, said Scully, forgetting herself. Mulder nuzzled her softly. Arable looked quickly away. William rolled onto his side and pulled the dog into his arms and gazed into his eyes. You know, I picked that dog out for William, singled him out of a whole box of puppies, but he still loves Scully the best, Mulder said. If by picking out a puppy you mean looking into the eyes of the one puppy who's standing there looking at you and then reaching out and picking him up and walking away, no examination of his gums or the toe pinch test, because I didn't care about his guns or his stoicism, Mulder said. He was Sir Prince Tashtago Mangelwurzel Mulder, or whatever William named him. He was the one for us. You always know how to humble me, don't you? Scully said. I don't mean to. It's just that we all have our own puppy-picking methods. When I think of Jesus, I picture Mulder. Arable said suddenly, and put her head down on her knees when they all looked at her. Well, that's delightfully sacrilegious, Mulder said. You mean the feeling he gives you, William said to Arable. Yeah. Any guy who can turn water into wine can't be all bad, Mulder said agreeably, still wrapped up in Scully. At dawn, William's car puttered away down the hill. The old dog stood at the top of the drive and howled into the void. Ten minutes later, Mulder and Scully broke apart and lay getting their breath back, staring into the dusty sunlight that fell across the bed. He stroked her body, and she caught his hand and gripped it, a wordless sex communique. Mulder was right-handed, he needed to be on the other side of her, so they rolled lazily into position. Her eyes were closed, and he cradled her in the crook of his left arm, kissing her temple, and let the friction of his fingers take over. He curled his long finger inside her. By the time she pressed her hand over his, Mulder was breathing as hard as she was. She turned quickly and pressed her mouth to his, tongues slipping against each other and she cried out into his mouth. They kissed and kissed. This multiple orgasm thing was a sure sign she was stressed and upset. They heard the ducks quacking, and Mulder sucked his fingers and dried them on the sheet. 
We're going to have to move again, she said. Her face contorted and she turned away. It's a good time for it anyway, he said gently. I might go back to school, Mulder, she said, rallying and wiping her eyes on the sheet. Just like Rodney Dangerfield, Mulder asked, rubbing her belly. I want to do some more advanced research into a couple of things. I need to keep up with William's work. We'll go wherever you need to. He leaned down and kissed her pale, fluttery skin, chilly as a cloud. What's this about you discouraging William's musical interests? I haven't discouraged him. It's just that the point of Oxford is to concentrate on one subject without distractions. Total immersion. He can also tell you the lineup at Monterey Pop in 69. It's not like he's limited to one avenue, Mulder argued. He's got other interests than physics. I don't think he should just be shut off like that. I guess I keep coming back to something Mrs. Peacock said to me. She said that I wouldn't understand what love was until I had a son who would do anything for me. Scully, I think Mrs. Peacock was hinting darkly at something far oogier than you can imagine. All the same, Mulder, in many ways she was right. Do you think that's why we had him? To save me? You can't think that way, Mulder said. William's got his own life to live. He needs to get away from us. He's us, but he's not us. You can't help it that he's such a good kid and that he's going to help you. But it's not the reason he was born. I don't want you feeling any guilt over William. Was I born just to search for Samantha? You know there's more to it than that. Scully rolled over against him and put her arm around his neck, her breathy mouth against the side of his face, wet patch of hair against his belly. I want to do it again. No, you don't. Mulder pressed her onto her back and put his fingers on her breastbone, holding her still. Scully's wet, wild eyes stared up at him. The panic slid out of her slowly. He brushed her hair out of her eyes. No, you don't, he whispered. You know what I feel like? An orange crush. Do they still make that? Asked Mulder on the freeway. Remember it endlessly circulating in those plastic box things? I suppose it still exists said Scully. Mulder was on an orange kick. He picked out orange-scented dish soap, and he squeezed halved oranges over salsa, over salads, or into his beer. He claimed that orange oil repelled termites. He had plans to rub essential orange oil into Scully's labia as a sexual stimulant, although they hadn't gotten around to it yet. It's so weird when they start making stuff, said William. Yeah. Remember Cherry Coke? Yeah. Remember Pepsi One? Remember Tab? Mulder asked. 
Remember A&W root beer? He asked Scully. Remember Nehi? Jeez, you're ancient, said Arable. Remember Sarsaparilla? Remember the Model T? There was a silence. Scully looked over her shoulder and Arable blushed, jiggling her shoe against the console between the seats. William was impenetrable behind a pair of movie star sunglasses, a piece of licorice stuck in his lips. Even slumped in the back seat, he had a quietly efficient air. So, tell me again how they scrap a ship, said Matthew. It occurred to her that William's shaggy haircut exactly mirrored Matthew's hair. Well, they cut it up with blowtorches. This is superior steel, and they'll melt it down, Scully said, craning around, her hand on the back of Mulder's seat. They're taking it through the Panama Canal, because we don't have a salvage yard on the West Coast. William said. It's going to Texas. This is breaking my dad's heart, Matthew commented. Oh, I know, Scully said sadly. She looked over at Mulder. I remember A&W root beer. She reached over and stroked his hand. The kids watched from the back seat. Hey, baby, I'd like to get you on my Model T said Mulder. William was struck. God, imagine, like, being married, he whispered. Oh, I know, said Arable. Imagine having a baby. Oh, my God, said Arable, appalled. Matthew spoke up. Hey. Isn't this the freeway in America most commonly frequented by serial killers? Scully said, maybe, looking out her window. Getting permission to board the ship in San Diego had been a reflexive action she really regretted. Her brother had called her from Scotland when the ship was struck from the Navy list, and Scully went into high gear because the USS Wacamole was venerable a veteran of the Cuban blockade, and she wanted William to see it. On the base at Miramar, she had waited with the other children for the ship to appear after months of absence, its fog whistle reaching across the water, calling out to them. It was going to be hard to bear seeing the rusty, outdated beast, riding on its moorings and awaiting its fate. It would be dry-docked and torn apart at the joints. It would become bridges and slag. You know that old Indian rug in my dad's office? William said. There's bloodstains on it. I had that rug cleaned, said Mulder. Well, nobody uses the term Indian anymore, Scully said. Except the Indians, said Mulder. Human blood, William said. Jesus, William, where are you getting this? Mulder snapped. That rug is clean. The stains are visible under fluorescein enhancement. Mom showed me. Mulder looked at Scully. I was showing him how the equipment worked, she said apologetically. You know, my dad helped catch Monty Prots back in the 80s. 
And he caught a serial killer called John Lee Roach. He caught a guy who ate people's livers. My God, who does that? Hissed Arable. William, said Mulder from the front seat. The violent deaths of innocent people are not a matter of entertainment. Yeah, I know. Sorry, said William. I mean, we can learn from these events. It's acceptable to be curious. Scully swiveled around and peered into the back seat. The thing to remember is that modern society creates people who are not really human. They're out there walking around, but there's something essentially missing in them. You can't usually tell. I mean, they look like you or me. Mulder stretched his legs a little, glancing at her fondly. Well, they don't usually look like you, Scully. She felt strange. She always felt a little off. Perpetually, she felt the psychic unease of déjà vu. She seemed to walk around in a protracted off day. Her reflexes had become like lightning in her late thirties, after William was born. If something fell from a shelf, her hand shot out and caught it before she knew what was happening. During that grey tunnel of time, when they did not have William, she had felt the ghostly letdown of milk in her breasts every time she thought of him, and the irrevocable love strong as anger, like a sexual pull. She wanted her hands on him and his skin against hers. She reached for him in her sleep. She wanted to smell him and watch for Mulder in his face. She madly loved his froggy legs and his little penis and the back of his baby neck. She wanted to look into his eyes and see again that someone knew her on her truest level. Scully looked between the back seats, her hand on Mulder's headrest. How children changed. They were like different people at different ages. William narrowed his rainy day eyes and transferred his gaze to the prism sparkle of broken glass packed along the freeway dividers. He hadn't told Scully he'd miss her, although he'd been saying as much to Mulder for weeks. Mulder was the one they all loved. Scully was always the toughest parent, poring over report cards for half an hour, standing over dentists. She would be around forever. Mulder was the one you wrestled with in the tall grass. Mulder was the one you would miss. Normally they would stop in San Diego and see Grandma Scully, who was in a care facility. Scully stopped to visit when she could, just for the joy of getting into a niggly fight over nothing with someone who knew her so well. Mulder had his hand on her thigh, his eyes on the road. They'd taken so many trips this way, Mulder's hand in hers, their miracle baby bored in the back. Scully would fall into a dream, something close to sleep, Mulder's thumb tracing the lines inside her hand, like a secret map he must frequently consult, William slurping at ice with a soft drink straw, until one of them requested he not. Holding hands with Mulder was still the best feeling in the world, just as nice as it had felt back in the Stone Age days, when they'd pretended that holding hands might be something FBI agents did to comfort each other. 
She remembered those distant years when they traveled together, dressed to the nines, carrying on formal discussions, turning to stare into each other's eyes. They hadn't really known each other then, she liked to think, but the truth was, they'd always known each other. Even during her first few days on the job, she'd felt a strong attachment to him, as if he were a character in a novel she'd just read. They'd driven together and slept in separate rooms, stared at identical ceilings. They'd gone all over the country thus, and to Siberia and Antarctica and Africa, their only real contact, a little polite CPR. Her cancer took a turn for the worse, and he briefly gripped her hand. He'd kissed her hand, gazed profoundly into her eyes, and she'd thought, of all the times to be dying, Dana. After the bureau, they'd thrown themselves into their present life as if it were a mission, a case. William was their 18-year exile. As ever, it was a joint effort. Scully recorded his inoculations in her journal, and Mulder somehow came up with 200 popsicle sticks at 8 o'clock on a school night. Upon their move to California, Mulder had encountered Marty Glenn on a shimmery L.A. sidewalk 3,000 miles from the place they'd last seen each other. Marty ran a down-at-heel cinema on Broadway, showing mostly Antonioni and Fellini, films Scully couldn't imagine actually paying money to watch. Marty had had a crush on Mulder the first time too, and Scully could just imagine how he talked to her, his voice getting softer as he drew her gently into his trap. She was well aware of Mulder's ability to charm, Scully had chaperoned him the second time, braced for a black-and-white film about French children or Werner Herzog eats his shoe. Naturally, she and Marty Glenn had nothing to say to each other, but Scully was strangely liberated by each encounter, her freakish youth gone unrecognised. The invisibility felt good, and she went back with Mulder and William to watch This Island Earth, 1955. Marty sat in the ticket booth, pushing the speaker button when it was her turn to talk. She looked over Mulder's shoulder and smiled with joy, her toes wiggling in the yellow coat of an overweight seeing-eye dog whose training was slipping. Scully really couldn't blame women who got crushes on Mulder. Scully had allowed her own crush on Mulder to completely control her life from day one, and so on, and to infinity. Resistance is futile, Earth woman. Scully didn't want to feel invisible. When Mulder was looking down at her, incredibly tender, fingertips slow against her skin, she would begin to feel that he couldn't really see her, that he was touching a glass surface inches away. She had practically chewed him up a few times, sideways across the bed, wanting to feel him, to feel real, to come back to life. She imagined this was the way the layers had begun to build up, why Felig had always felt a mile away when she talked to him. Felig. Her curiosity over Felig. Another instance of her undoing. She'd always known the thing with Mulder would go too far, end in dark distortion. She just hadn't imagined this. With Marty, it was as if the layers had always been there and were easily compensated for by a superior sense of personality. 
Scully didn't feel any different to Marty, because nothing truly had changed. She was the same old Scully inside. He considered time a medium, a syrup of memory, the round and round dryer of the sea. Scully, of course, was profoundly Newtonian. Time was invariant, chronic, untold. Mulder liked to keep his options open. He imagined the lifespans of philosophies, one giving into the next, new enlightenment built on the old. You could go backwards along the chain, see the Archaeopteryx's stone feathers come back to life, because nothing really dies. He bit his thumbnail and watched the three young people fan out across the marine terminal's vast loading dock, kicking a pebble between them. Mulder waited at the car while Scully took on the port authority. She could get through life without an FBI badge, her eyes deadlier than cyanosis, but Mulder was still missing his, twenty years on. Everything dies. Who said that? She was making straight for him now, wearing her sunglasses, everything under control. Mulder hated when he couldn't see her eyes. He leaned against the car, blotting her out with his shoulder. Half glimpsed, she wasn't quite substantial, her orange soda hair glinting blue, as if she masqueraded under opposite colours, like colours printed offset in a comic book. Like the feeling of a small child drinking water from his hand, catching a half-certain glimpse of her made his stomach tingle. She brushed something from his shoulder. William was jogging toward them. How did you get permission? he asked. I'm a Navy brat, she said. There's a password. Be like Dad. Keep Mum, Mulder said, looping his binoculars around his neck. I'm a Navy brat too, said Matthew, linking his arm through Scully's. They walked into a city of shipping containers. What am I then? asked William. You're an FBI squib, an X-file sprog, Mulder said. They came out of an alley of cans and took a faceful of ocean air. A graceful bite of mooring cable curved up the side of an enormous ship. Is that it? Is that it? William asked breathlessly. It's huge. Scully caught up with him and rubbed his back to calm herself. The ship rose above them, immense, tight and musical as a cathedral bell, the prow curling outward like a petal. Hundreds of feet above the main deck, the great crosses of the radar towers supplicated above the sea. Mulder recalled the Norwegian sea years ago an absolute nightmare assuaged only by Scully's presence. It's a Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser, Scully said. 700 feet long, 10,000 tons of displacement, and it used to pack some fairly serious warheads. You're not surprised by how big it is? Mulder asked. I've been on it before, Scully said tightly. Captain Scully and his father-daughter issues and his monstrous warship would ever remain an enigma for Mulder. He'd never met the man. He really only knew him in terms of his aphorisms, which Scully brought forth from time to time. 
Matthew said, Dana, and turned her, arm around her, as Mulder held up the camera. Scully's mouth snapped shut. The blank alien eyes of her sunglasses returned nothing. He photographed the two of them in the shadow of the ship, although he knew the picture would never make it to the computer. William was so excited he looked ahead. Mulder and Scully exchanged a look of amusement. Arable ran after him, and Matthew strolled along, pausing to spit in the harbour. Mulder and Scully slowly climbed the cleated gangplank. And you claimed I'd never take you on a cruise, Mulder said, tugging on the back of her jacket. Just the thought of boarding a ship made him queasy. The water below them looked as thick and greasy as soup, and the ship sighed and heaved against the tyres that padded the quay. What about the Bermuda Triangle? Scully asked over her shoulder. On deck, she folded her sunglasses and put them in her pocket. He stood examining her glorious teary eyes as she silently asked him for answers he didn't have. Hey, he said, and stroked the place beneath her chin that made her eyes close and her lips get soft. And when he had her just right, he kissed her, but not as much as she wanted him to. Well, I'll be topside, he said standing back and slapping his thigh with his newspaper. She cleared her throat. Do you have any idea what that means? She asked. Their smile slid slowly forth. Don't worry, you'll make a sailor of me yet, Scully, he said. Up on the flight deck, he crossed the helipad and leaned on the rail. He was far above the water, wind at the back of his neck. Ballast water gouted from a valve in the side of the ship, likely laden with invasive seaweeds and foreign disease. They too had a right to exist. There were proper frameworks for existence, and things that denied the frame. The oily black water was slack. If he leaned farther into the wind, he could take a long, slow half-gainer down into the drink. What was left of him would turn up in a few days, nibbled and pale and hard to identify, no longer with a care in the world. People would say it was a selfish act. Was it selfish to lose one's balance? Was it selfish to carelessly drown in the middle of writing a book? To experiment with handguns? To put one's head in the oven when you had a living child? He found a capstan beyond the helipad where the flat anvil prow jutted over the water. He tried to read. The wind jerked at his newspaper, and the light was too bright. A jet-propelled feeling hit him every time he thought of Europe. William and Scully had been packing for weeks, but Mulder hadn't even begun to think what he should take. He slid a sunflower seed into his mouth and sucked the salt from the shell. He would need his writing notebook, something to give Arable when they parted, so that she'd never forget him. His fossilised megalodon tooth, maybe. His sea monster key ring. He'd write her a note. She was quite a kid, shiningly smart, nervous and lonely. He'd been there. She'd be all right. It wasn't that he didn't want to go to Europe. It was just that the timing was off. 
The spark plugs in the lawnmower would corrode. William's hillside mathematics, like a giant's equation, would be lost forever, the grass grown out and fading in the heat. Nor did it seem right to leave the dog, who had given them his whole life and his whole heart without hesitation. He needed a parting gift for William, too, to keep his spirits up. His two-volume complete farside, maybe, except it would be awful to lug overseas. Just one farside cartoon, then. Mutants on the bounty, or one of the scientist ones where they'd crossed out the name in the caption and written in Scully, laughing for ten minutes at Scully's expense. He'd never had a better time than with William. He wanted the boy to break away, to have his own life. But he knew that wasn't the way it worked. He thought he would make a study of all the things that watch us from above. Satellites and birds and God and news helicopters. He would like to go over the earth like an albatross until a crossbow brought him down. Scully crossed the helipad, clasping a small wooden box. He slid sideways on the broad capstan, and she settled down against him, and he wrapped his arms around her and tucked his face into her neck. She shivered. He rubbed her belly as her breathing slowed, and for the first time in days he felt her relax. Did the kids find Grandpa Scully's bunk? He asked. Scully smiled without opening her eyes. They're up in the gun turret right now, fending off kamikazes and submarines. And they were furiously impressed with the mess decks and a Japanese vending machine. The barber chairs, the cinema, all those toilets in a row in the head. Mulder kissed her hair, read a few paragraphs about problems with Afghanistan's ring road, then kissed her hair again. In the sunlight, he could see freckles faint as toasted sugar on the bridge of her nose. She found the camera in his pocket and sat with her hands cupped around the screen. Mulder heard clicking and the tiny buzz as she deleted every picture she was in, a practice he had to silently tolerate. Mulder liked to think that he could forgive Scully anything, but that it was in her nature to put him to the test. He did not like to think in terms of love, because love was an unavoidable fact of nature. Once died into one's deep tissue, there was nothing to be done about it. He did not love Scully so much as he could not eradicate her. He could no more exist without her than he could without his liver, or so he fondly imagined. He would never, ever tire of looking at her face. His latest task was to remove himself from geocentrism. He was not the centre of anything, nor was his planet. Nothing about his life mattered an iota, not even Scully. This enormous, solid ship would be cut up for scrap. Mulder's body would get old. Inside, he would feel exactly the same. Scully would look the same, but not feel the same. Already, she did not feel the same inside. What's that you've got there? He asked. She opened the little teak box and revealed a dial that looked like a clock's face ringed in brass. It's a marine chronometer. They insist that I have it. Mulder stroked the small brass impulse roller. Surely it was too antique to have been used on a modern cruiser, 
every inch of which appeared to be thickly gloved with camouflage grey. Do you think he used it? I don't know, she breathed, teary. She closed the box, and he kissed the rough edge of her hair at her cold temple. William shouted above them. Mulder looked up, leaning backwards. William and Arable were hanging over a rail high above. Hey, William shouted. Ahoy there, called Mulder. Hey, Arab wants to know about you guys. Was it love at first sight? No, called Mulder. Emphatically, no, Scully whispered. She thought I was crazy. We were just friends for a long, long time, Mulder called. William and Arable exchanged a veiled glance. A very long, long time, Scully murmured. That movie last night was weird, William called. Yeah, well, that wasn't a movie. That was real life, Mulder pointed out. Yeah, well, real life is weird. It is, Mulder agreed. I don't want to ruin your lives, Scully said. Mulder sighed and folded his paper. Look at me. She turned under his arm and looked straight into his eyes. This is it, right now. Breathe in, he said. Scully, have you ever doubted me? Scully sounded like she was spitting out a sunflower shell. He pressed his face into her hair and smiled too. Let's rephrase that, he said. Has there ever been a phenomenon we haven't prevailed over? I'm not so sure we got the better of those mothmen, Scully said. Can I bar those? William asked, panting as he came up. He unlooped Mulder's binoculars from around his neck. Matthew strolled past, knuckling William's cheek, his deck shoes lashed with forest green paint. Conquistadors, said Mulder. We had a snuggle for warmth, and you sang Froggy Wanda Corton. Mom sang? William asked, nearby, binoculars to his eyes. Were dogs howling for miles? Oh, ha, ha, Scully said coldly. The Dylan version or the old spiritual? No, it wasn't Froggy Wanda Corton, Scully said. She snapped her fingers. Jeremiah Smith was a bullfrog. Da-da, Mulder sang. That always makes me think of the big chill. That's Three Dog Night, said William, when it doesn't make me think of Scully's ungovernment sanction snuggling off me in the woods, said Mulder. It's actually called Joy to the World, said William. Let's just say that you get all your musical talent from me, me boy. Mulder said happily. He tightened his arms around Scully. What about the conquistadors? William asked. Breathe in, Mulder murmured into Scully's hair. This is it, right now. She inhaled the wet salt air, ripe with rot and metal.
Now breathe out, he said, whispering against her neck. And as she exhaled, he could feel the wave of time that was continuously peddling her away through the dark stars, and he clung to her. He opened his eyes to make it check, and sunlight stabbed at him. I think this boat is sinking, he commented. This rusty bucket of bolts. It's just full of bilge. They're pumping it out. We'll sink right here in the harbor. It'd be the story of my life. Mulder saw the three of them lined up at the rail before him, so fresh and so beautiful in their temporary youth, all fallen into a daze at the sunlight fracturing on harbor water. Matthew rubbed his scratchy chin and yawned. Arable leaned into William, whispering. Mulder recognised the nonchalant lean, the casual whisper of determined, just friends. He knew the intense beauty of the person you dared not touch. The kids are starving, Mulder. Let's go, Scully said without opening her eyes. He held up the camera, but it was hard to see the screen in the bright light, and he took it on faith that it would capture the wind and the three young people in the bow of the old ship. I know you think you're the only one going through this, he said to her. She twitched argumentatively in his arms. You know as well as I do that the baby was a miracle, he said. She nodded after a moment. And miracles always happen for a reason, he said. Scully looked down and opened the box again. Mulder could see his own reflection in the glass dial his forehead wrinkling worriedly. He looked healthy enough. Maybe he weighed a little more than he had ten years ago. He was aging. This seemed a touching thing to him, the process of aging as endearing proof of being alive. He was not such a bad guy when you got to know him. I'll miss me when I'm gone, he thought. He thought of time as a medium in which you could move, forwards or back. In various mythologies, the standard of enlightenment meant learning that you had had the answer the whole time, that it was always right there in front of you. The answer was you. The answer was her. The answer was yes. William looked at them over his shoulder, hair spiking in the wind. The swells rose up and the rusty ship shifted beneath them and Mulder swallowed woozily and held on to Scully. William gripped the rail and gasped, his eyes on his parents. Oh, Mom, I'm going across the ocean. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. William Shakespeare, The Tempest Author's Note The title derives from a childhood mishearing of Shakespeare's phrase, A fathom equals six feet. In the old days, anything dropped into five fathoms of water 30 feet, was irretrievably lost. 
Rather appropriately, the phrase is also used to mean something like irretrievably sunken in despair. Thank you for listening to AFP. If you liked this story and would like to contribute, please consider visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash audiofanfakepod. For just $3 a month, you can support the operating costs of AFP and gain early access to one story per month. If you have time, please consider getting in touch about editing. You'll help us bring more stories to you faster. And remember, the stories are out there.